0: Okay, family business over. Take your Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue together in the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, last week was Vision Sunday, so we stepped away, but now we're stepping back in. If you do need a copy of God's Word, Lana has some, and she's walking around with them. Just put your hand in the air, and she'd be happy to bring you uh, a copy this morning. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 5. And we'll read through verse 15. We're really just going to look through, look at the first eight verses in this text this morning. But we'll read through verse 15. And so, two weeks ago, we introduced this section, right? The beginning of, of Matthew chapter 6. Verses, the, the section roughly goes from verse 1 in Matthew chapter 6 through uh, verse 18 in Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus is outlining three things for us. Three things are mentioned. He mentions prayer, or, uh, giving. He mentions prayer, which we're talking about today, and we'll be actually talking about for the next few weeks. And then he talks about fasting. And these three things would have been pillars in Jewish life. These things would have been pillars in Jewish life. Three things that they would have been engaged in regularly. And so certainly it would have made sense for Jesus to address these three things. And so we kind of are in the middle of the sermon. And so he starts talking about these things. And this really is here a point for all of these three things. That Jesus wants to tell his followers to see that oftentimes motivations go sideways. The purpose for looking at these three things, the purpose that Jesus gives for these three things, uh, talking about these three things in particular, is that oftentimes motivations go sideways. And so I think that for us as the 21st century church here in Jamestown, North Dakota, 21st century local church, Prayer is probably, the second thing that Jesus talks about, what we're going to talk about this morning, prayer is probably one of those things that gets talked about a lot, but it doesn't actually get practiced or considered through the lens of the way that Jesus talks about it here. This is important. Read with me these, we'll read these 16 verses, and then we'll talk about verses 5 through 8. That's going to set us up for this discussion about the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, how Jesus tells us to pray over the next several weeks. So look at me, with me, look, not look at me, look at the text. Look with me at the text, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going out on the limb when we look at this text to say that we as people don't pray very much. We just don't do it very much. And I know a lot of people who have been faithful in prayer, but I think just in general, we as a people fail to pray very much. And unfortunately, I don't think there's a lot of, or I do think, that there's a lot of words and sort of empty cliches that float around this idea. That float around here, and and we talk about prayer, and we kind of throw some things out there about prayer. I won't go down that road, at least not yet. But what I want you to just to work towards as a body is understanding biblically what prayer is and why Jesus expects that His followers are engaged in it. Jesus expects that His followers are engaged in it, and I think there's a whole host of reasons that we don't pray as people. We don't pray consistently, and I think probably number one on our list in our culture is that the pace of life is so frenetic. We move from one thing to the next so quickly. That we fail to pray consistently. We we fail, if ever, to slow down to even consider a prayer. And if we want to talk about opening windows to the heart, like we have so often in the Sermon of the Mount, if we want to talk about opening windows to the heart, this, here's a big one. Ask the question: Do you pray regularly? The answer is no. You don't know, because you can't squeeze it in. That's opening a window very clearly up to our heart. It could mean that you're a workaholic or that you're poor at guarding your time, or are you using your time selfishly? Or it could mean that you're addicted to technology. There's a hundred different reasons why that might be the case for you. And then we say things like, maybe like this, maybe as an excuse, I just don't know how to pray. I'm just not good at it. In our lives, we watched that video early, in our lives, things rarely come easily. Things rarely come easily. We have to discipline ourselves in a lot of different areas to get to go get to, to the place where we want to go. Why do we think that personal, spiritual disciplines like prayer are, are any different? And again, Jesus expects that his followers are praying. Look at this. Verse 5. And when you pray. He doesn't say if you pray, but he says when you pray. Followers of Jesus pray. Plain and simple. If you're not praying, you're not following Jesus. And Jesus tells us exactly what to pray right here. We don't even have to guess what to pray. He just gives it to us in verse 9 through 13. He just gives it to us straight up. And so a part of this too is I think that we've made it exceedingly complicated and we've handicapped ourselves by having some, some structure, or some acronym, which can be helpful to prayer, but sometimes we look at those things really we like, what's the last letter in the acronym so I can cover my bases? That's kind of the way that we think about that. If we give ourselves a bunch of how-tos in the midst of them, we forget to actually pray. So let's consider a few truths from this text that Jesus gives us clearly. Let's consider a few truths that will propel us then into the discussion of of the Lord's Prayer in the upcoming weeks. The first thing I want to submit to you, coming from this text, and I think it's clear, is that our flesh doesn't like prayer. Our flesh doesn't like prayer. What do I mean by that? When I say our flesh, I mean that part of us that still really likes to be the center of the universe, that really likes to live for ourselves, that really likes to take glory for ourselves, to put, God, put ourselves in God's rightful place, in short, our flesh, I mean, by what I mean by that is that hidden part of us that still really likes sin. That part doesn't like prayer. And look at what Jesus says. He starts off by saying, don't be like the hypocrites. You must not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrite is a theater term. In the Greek, it's a theater term. And so when we think about hypocrites, we usually think about someone who says something, that they're going to do something, but then they don't do it. But more, more probably accurately, what Jesus is saying is people putting on a show. Really like, don't be like the people who are putting on a show. Now in Jesus' time, there would have been three times during the day to pray. In the morning, midday, mid-afternoon. These Je- are pillars in the Jewish life. They would have stopped what they were doing, they would have faced Jerusalem, and they would have prayed. Sometimes they were recited, most of the time they were recited prayers. It's what they did. It was built into their day. Everyone did. Pillar of Jewish religious life. Now, these hypocrites were the ones who would just happen, they would just happen, when it came time to pray, they would just happen to find themselves in a place, in a public place where they would be visible to everyone around them. They would just happen to find themselves in this place where everybody could see them pray. And then you see in verse 7, look at verse 7 with me, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. So the hallmark of someone who is praying with the wrong motives then is someone who does so in an extremely visible way and is very wordy. So here's why I say that our flesh doesn't like prayer. Remember last week, if you were here last week with us, we were talking about Vision Sunday. We were talking about counter-formation. We looked at Romans 12.2 where Paul writes... Not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so, the practices that we engage in regularly on a daily basis in our daily life, those things are forming us. The Christian life is about counterformation. So many things that are required of us in Scripture as we follow Jesus are in direct opposition to what the world tells us is important. And so we're being formed in a different way. We're being counterformed to the way of the world. So prayer is counterformation. Prayer is like you're going to go home and watch the NFL today, I'm sure of it. When you do, prayer is like a quarterback who's right-handed trying to throw the ball with his left hand. I mean, I've seen guys do it. They can do it. Because they're professional athletes. But like if you're just like a high school quarterback, throwing, throwing the, the, the just like a high school quarterback. I don't want to diminish high school quarterbacks here. But if, if you're throwing the ball with your left hand and your right hand, and you're wired to throw the ball with your right hand, you're going to look pretty dumb throwing the ball with your left hand. That's just the, the fact of the matter. Your brain just isn't that wired that way. And because this quarterback he's throwing us the ball with his right hand a million times, and in the same way, your prayer wiring is disrupted by sin. Your prayer wi- wi- wiring is disrupted by sin, so doing it becomes a label. It becomes counterformation. The world tells you it's silly, and we'll talk about why it's silly in a moment, or why the world tells us it's silly. In the ancient world, it would make you stop what you were doing. So, if you're walking down the road and it came time to pray, you had to stop what you're doing, face Jerusalem, and pray. It interrupted your processes, your work, whatever you were doing. Time came to pray, and you prayed. That's incredibly inefficient. Are you kidding? That's incredibly inefficient. Can you imagine having to stop what you're doing and do it? You can't just say, well, I'll just do that a little bit later when I have time. You say, no, right now, right in this moment, I have to stop what I'm doing. And that's incredibly inefficient. So they would have grown used to, in their culture, having to stop and pray. But the flesh was displeased because of the inconvenience that that represented for them. Their flesh was frustrated. And so... The hypocrites would use that built-in inefficiency in their day. They would use that built-in inefficiency to promote their own brand. They were going to get something done in that moment that they had to stop and pray. They wanted to make themselves look good. And so they put themselves in positions where they're traveling from one place to the other in the middle of the street, on the street corners. And they would begin to pray. And they would be wordy. And they would make sure that everyone saw them. In that moment, they were getting something done, they were making people see just how righteous they were, and that was the reward they sought. And I want to propose to you that that's very similar to the way that we think about prayer. Now, we don't have those moments throughout the course of the day where we have to stop and pray, because it's a pillar of our religious life. But prayer, to us, is inefficient and unproductive, or it feels that way. And so we don't stop to do it. We don't stop to quiet our minds and to pray I a doctor's appointment this week. Went to the doctor's appointment. You check in, right? First thing you do, you check in. And then what do you do? You go to a waiting room. So I had to wait. So I had to pull out my phone out of my pocket. Because what else do you do? Pull out my phone out of my pocket. Text some people. Email some people. Check Facebook. Find out a bunch of different details. Do all of those things. And then the nurse calls me. I have to head to the exam room. I ask her a few questions. Check my weight, my height, my blood pressure, whatever else. And then... Again, I'm alone waiting for the doctor. What do I do? Call my phone. Check some emails. Send some texts. Check Facebook. Right? This is what we do. We are being trained in our world to do something other than quiet our mind. I can get things done from anywhere on the planet. That's wonderful. I mean, it is incredible. It's an incredible reality. But what it does is it cuts against my ability to sit down and to actually uh, quiet my mind and to stop working. I don't have to stop working for even five minutes. And so my mentality is, make the most of my time. Be productive in this time where I'm in a waiting room. So I can, maybe maybe you maybe you do the same thing. I'm not speaking for you, I'm speaking for myself. Maybe you're going to check up with a client or, 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 or someone else, or, or check out a quarterly report or something, or apply to a co-worker, or maybe some follow-up with a client or a new client or your wife to see if you can pick up anything from the grocery store. Maybe it's just to see what's going on with your friend's new baby or to check what celebrities are tweeting or to follow the comment section on the outrage from that political post that your uncle put up a day ago. Whatever it is that we do on Facebook. So the question is, why don't we pray these moments? Why don't we quiet our minds? We're actually in a place where it's called a waiting room where we find ourselves in a place and part of that is because it just doesn't come naturally. It just doesn't come naturally because our because our prayer wiring is disrupted. Because it's disrupted. It's like throwing a football with our left hand. What the world has trained us to do is not pray. And friends, this is exactly the type of counterformative activity you must engage in. And in some ways, this is a bit ironic. Okay, so I'm reading this book, or I I have been reading this book, I've set it aside for a little time the author's name is Cal Newport wrote this book Deep Work maybe you've heard of it two quotes, I'm going to give you two quotes from it one is absolutely true, one is absolutely false and I have no reason to believe that Cal Newport is a Christian, I haven't studied his life extensively his perspective seems to be a secular one fine, whatever he's a 35 year old guy he's written five books, He wrote his first book at 23 that's impressive I haven't even started my first one so here's the quotes first quote This quote is absolutely true. I'm going to tell you that it's true out of the gate. First quote. Clarity about what matters provides clarity about what does not. Clarity about what matters provides clarity about what does not. Our kids love the hymn. They call it, O Soul, Are You? But it's Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. That's the name of the hymn. They call it, O Soul, Are You? Because that's the first line. The chorus goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And the things of earth will go strangely dim. Clarity about what matters provides clarity about what does not. Second quote. This one is absolutely false. If you don't produce, you won't thrive. If you don't produce, you won't thrive. Absolutely false. The biblical understanding of thriving or flourishing is not built on production levels, but on God's favor. Do you know that as God's child, we're flourishing, is not built on external realities, but the promises of God? We'll talk about this more in a moment, but let me just say something here that might be, but I don't know if it's controversial, I don't know. It's never stopped me before. Here we go. I think a lot of the things that we say about prayer are to make prayer seem like a productive activity according to the world standards. Let me say that again. I think a lot of the things that we say about prayer are to make pr- prayer seem like a productive activity according to world standards. We ask the question, "Why do we pray?" I've heard this response multiple times: "Because prayer changes things." That's a good. It's not a bad answer. It's a good answer. But what about the times where it doesn't seem to? What about the times where our situations in our lives don't seem to be changing? Then what? Are we appealing to the world that prayer is a good idea because it changes things? We're trying to convince people the reasons we pray is because it produces results. But what about when those results aren't perceivable or measurable? What about when we can't look at them and say, say, look at all of these things? Look at all of these things. What when we can't do that? And then what? What happens then? And it's not that that phrase prayer changes things isn't wrong. It's not wrong. That's just unhelpfully vague. The point is that prayer will change the outcome of a situation. But if it's done in the way that Jesus talks about, first it will change you. First it will change you. It will further your participation in his plan as a kingdom citizen. It is counter-formative. You quiet your mind you sit down and you seek to pray regularly the first thing and surest thing that you can be sure will change in your life is you and this idea of reward then comes up again right? Jesus says this again for us but when you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you The hypocrites pray with intent of being seen and thought of as righteous. That was their reward. Sometimes we pray with the hope of obtaining some temporary outcome, very much like the hypocrites. Frustrations at work, frustrations with our spouse, frustrations with our financial situation, your car breaks down, your kids are having a bad week. But I think our aim in prayer is less about making those things change as much as it is seeing God's purpose in those things for us. God, help me see your hand at work. In this situation at work in this conflict with my spouse, in these financial struggles, in my old beat-up car, in my disobedient children. Sure, absolutely pray that God would change those things. He calls us to do that. But if and when, in the timing that we give Him, He doesn't, it doesn't mean He's not at work. In that passage we read up on the screen together, verbally this morning, in Luke 11, verses 11 through 12. says this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion? And this is a very important point. This is very important for us. If we ask God for his fish, he will not give us a serpent. If we ask God for an egg, he won't give us a scorpion. But the inverse is also true. If we ask God for a serpent, He will still give us a fish. If we ask God for a scorpion, He will still give us an egg. Why? You're not dictating to God what you're receiving. You're receiving from God what you need. Verse 8 in our passage this morning. Do not be like them. For your Father... Knows what you need before you ask Him. And I would contend that in prayer, oftentimes, the majority of the time, we don't know what it is that we need. God, can I please have a more reliable car? And the reason in that moment you don't have a more reliable car is because God knows what you need and it's not a more reliable car. God, can this situation at work just get a little better? The reason the situation is getting better is because God knows you need to stay and it's not to have a better work environment by your standards. God knows what's good for you. He knows what you need before you know it. And He is always going to give you a fish. He will never give you a serpent. He will always give you an egg. He will never give you a scorpion. He always will give you what's good and absolutely 100% needed in every situation and He will never do the opposite. Prayer is largely seeing God's promises and believing that they are completely true. Mark even alluded to this further. In Romans 8, 31-34 says this. These are just some promises that I've been, I've been reflecting on in my own life and saying, Lord, I need these to be real. What then shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the contemner? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Isaiah 41, 90, 10. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and from its farthest corners. Saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your help. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold for you or I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or Psalm 1611, this promise, look at these promises. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Prayer is largely intended to bring these promises, these promises, and all of the promises of God into clear focus for us. You get in your room. You shut the door like Jesus says. You say, God, change the situation in my life. And you get in your room and you shut the door and you say, God, change the situation in my life. And you get in your room and you shut the door and you say, God, change the situation in my life and day after day. and Nothing seems to be changing situationally. And you wonder where God is and the answer is He's right there with you. He's right there next to you. You need to see the promises. He is for us. He is not against us. He will strengthen us. He will uphold us. He will make known to us the path of life at His right hand, the inheritance which we will receive in all of eternity. There are pleasures forevermore. These things do not change. Your circumstances, your situations in life do. These things do not change. These things are absolutely true every single moment of every single day. These are the good things that God gives you. These are the things that God knows that you need before you ask Him. He needs. He knows that you need more of Him, a faithful God who never abandons His promises. And Jesus knew that our flesh doesn't like prayer. Because whether we are applauded or whether we see outcomes, we're caught in what we can and cannot measure. But prayer is an unseen discipline that lacks measurable results at times. And when it lacks those measurable results, how do we respond? We trust the promises of God are true because they're rooted in God himself. So, what does Jesus want us to think then about prayer? Jesus only wants us to see one thing here in verses 5 through 8. One very important thing Comes to the top, rises to the top in this passage. It's not the mode, it's not the method, it's not the means, but it's the motivation for prayer. Jesus wants us to pray not as those who are seeking results immediately, but as those who are disciplined and obedience to communicate with His or Her Heavenly Father. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this True prayer does not depend either on the individual or the whole body of the faithful, but solely upon the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows our needs. That makes God the sole object of our prayers and frees us from false confidence in our own prayerful efforts. What is the motivation to pray? And this is why Jesus, again, uses this reward language, and He's going to keep using this throughout the rest of the sermon about why He uses this reward language. Is your motivation to receive temporary reward in the here and now? Or is your motivation to receive more of God. And oftentimes our reason for not praying, or our excuses for praying, is the exact same. We don't review the reward we get as good enough. We're actually making statements about who God is when we don't pray. We're saying the reward we get is not good enough. If there's no promise that I'll get what I want, then why even do it? The motivation for prayer should only and always be to be rewarded with God himself. And this, we have a clear picture of who we are as a people. Tim Keller in his book, Prayer, writes that prayer grants a reorientation of our view on God. It shows us a different aspect or a different place where we are with God. He writes this, One image for the reorientation of prayer is you're going on a journey and getting to a higher elevation where you can see the terrain you are traversing as a whole and realizing, I'm further along than I thought. Or perhaps, I've made less progress than I thought. In prayer, we may see that we are more loved and cared for than we had felt, and that diminishes our fears. We see that we are more foolish and self-absorbed than we thought, and prayer gets rid of our anger and self-pity. Friends, if you're in Christ, God has given you all things. This is a promise that you have been given. If you are in Christ, you have been given all things. We continually come back to this idea in Romans eight thirty two. Time and time again, I read it just a moment ago. But he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This verse implies we need. How will he also... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things we need? We've skewed this idea of need in our consumer culture. We ask, what is needed for life? And the answers are water, food, oxygen, whatever they are. We quickly use need language to describe all sorts of other things, when in reality we need very, very little. When Jesus makes this statement, your father knows what you need before you ask him, the answer, in verse 8, the answer isn't a hug. The answer isn't a more reliable car. The answer isn't kids who aren't freaking out all the time, or more money, or, or whatever it might be in your world. The answer is, he knows that you need more of him. And He is going to use everything in your world to give you more of himself. He is going to do that. That is not something that he puts on pause. That is not something that gets put on hold. He's always using everything in your world to give you more of Himself. That's what it means that when you ask for a serpent or a scorpion, uh, you get an egg or a serpent and you get a fish. You might not know what you need to ask for. God knows, and He's always giving it to you. That is a difficult truth. He's going to use everything in your world to give you more of Himself. Personally, we have some student debt and we've been making payments on that for what seems like forever and I've prayed a ton of times I've prayed a ton of times Rebecca and I have prayed a ton of times which is something like show up write a check pay it all off and because that hasn't happened it doesn't mean that I don't have enough faith or that God doesn't want me to be happy or that God doesn't hear me what it means is for me to know God more as for his purposes to be accomplished in my life I have to make payments on student loans that's what it means that's what that means. But could I, give, could I give more if I didn't have debt? Yeah, absolutely. Does God, not, does God want me to be generous? Yeah, God wants me to be generous. But by asking those questions, by asking those questions, we're demanding. We're back to demanding perceivable, miserable results. Consider with me later in, in the sermon about verse 11 in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, If you then who are evil know, we read it a moment ago, the Luke version. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who 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 ask? Who ask Him? God is your Father. God is your Father. We all have earthly fathers. Maybe your earthly Father was awesome. Maybe your earthly Father is or was terrible. God is your Father. What does that make you? That makes you God's child. God is good. He is infinitely good. And therefore, the best that He can give you is Himself. God is infinitely good. Therefore, the best that He can give you is more of Himself. Friends, we wade into that reality this week. God in Christ has called you His child. There is nothing that you can do to change that. There is nothing that you can do to change that status. The hypocrites Jesus talks about did not know God as their Father. They didn't think that God would reward them with good things. They thought they needed to figure out the reward for themselves. So they turned prayer into a public spectacle to earn others' approval. And when we fret about what others think about when we pray aloud, or when we fret about what others think about when we do anything, we are denying in fact That God is our Father, just like the hypocrites. God made you and called you and bought you with the precious blood of Jesus, His Son. He can and will and does and intends to fully preserve you. No matter what others think or don't think, God looks at you with intense, unending, unwavering favor. So He calls us to come to Him. To make our requests known to Him. Fully understanding that whatever the result is in those requests, that we are getting more of Him. That He is always faithful to who He is and what He says. And that His favor rests on us at all times. So in conclusion, I'm just going to give you three, three thoughts. In conclusion, we won't go into great detail here because we've done that so far. The motivation for prayer is to be rewarded with God himself. The motivation for prayer is to be rewarded with God himself. Secondly, a fleshy motivation to pray is to see perceivable, immediate, beneficial, and measurable results. A fleshy motivation to pray is to see perceivable, immediately beneficial, and measurable results by the world's standards. On the flip side of that, a fleshy motivation to not pray or a reason for not praying is because we cannot see perceivable at all times, cannot see perceivable, immediately beneficial, or miserable results. Discipline yourself in prayer, this is counterformative. Disciplining yourself in prayer is counterformative. In the Gospel of Luke, every time that something major happens in the life of Jesus, he retreats to pray. Every single time something major in his life happens, he retreats to pray. He takes time to quiet himself, to get away, and to pray. He shuts the door, the proverbial door. He goes into his room, shuts it, and prays to his Father who sees in secret. And here's one more quote from our friend Cal Newport. Who you are, what you think, feel, and do, what you love, is the sum of what you focus on. This one is true. This quote is absolutely true because it's rooted in what Jesus says just a few verses past our text this morning. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Prayer, in the way that Jesus instructs his disciples here, opens up a deep, abiding, unwavering reality that all we need is found in God through Christ. Prayer, then, is not performative, prayer is formative. May that drive us into the reality to slow down this week, to close the door to quiet our minds and pray. Let's pray.